man, I even said, I'm not going to cry today. I really don't have a reason to cry. And here I go again. However many times this is for me, I don't know, six or something, I'm six for six in the crying department. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but good morning. I'm the children's pastor, and I forgot to dismiss the children. So I always get mad at Pastor Aaron for doing that. I glare at him like, you forgot us again. And here I am doing the exact same thing. Now I get it. It's a little distracting, right? But aren't we so glad that they're in here? To break up a little fight this morning, that's okay. Sorry. (laughs) You know, it happens, right? But it's so good because you look over and they're singing those words of those songs, you are good. As fast as their little eyes can read it, they're singing it. And so it's important and we'll deal with the distractions, we'll deal with the brotherly fights. It's a brother, you know, we get it. So if you don't know, my name is Holly. I know it's weird when I'm not normally what you see up here, and um, most of you are, like, thankful that that's not the case. And so I promise Aaron will be back. But in true Aaron fashion, he has to get away and he has to golf um, once a year. And it seems to be always in February. That's, like, my month that I preach because Aaron's golfing. And it also always lands on his wife's birthday, So Katie's birthday is today, in fact. So I'm not sure if that's actually the present for Katie. Like she gets to be husband-free for the weekend or whatever. So that might be the best present that she receives today. But if you see her, she's actually up with our kids today so that I could be in here. If you see her, wish her a happy birthday. And she might be just super happy today because Aaron's not here. But I know last week Aaron brought to you um, the character of Samson from the Bible. And we're in this series called Flawed Heroes, so it's pretty, um, I guess, pretty easy to see how he would fit into the flawed part of that definition. Samson was a wreck, right? He made us all feel good last week. We were all like, hey, we're not so bad compared to him, right? He's got, he's got a lot of mess going on, and it's harder to see maybe how he's a hero. And then today, I get to bring you the story of Ruth, and I think the opposite is true for her. I'm having a hard time figuring out how she's flawed. She seems like a pretty amazing lady. If, you, if you're not familiar with Ruth, um, hopefully we can discover together maybe what she's, how she's flawed, how she would be considered a flaw, but we're certainly going to discover some stuff about Ruth and what she says about us today. So if you want to take out your Bibles and get to Ruth. It's the eighth chapter in the Bible, so it's toward the front, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Now make sure you lick your finger real good when you're flipping through those paper-thin pages because Ruth is like two pages long. It's four chapters. You're going to miss it. She gets overlooked a lot because it's just a dinky little book of the Bible, but she's packed with good stuff in there. And actually, if you were to read from the message version of the Bible, Sarah Clausen filled me in on this. They just did a series in youth group a few months ago, and the message book, uh, the message translation of Ruth starts, once upon a time. I mean, if you want to really engage teenagers, right, there's nothing like bringing them a fairy tale. Teenage boys are going to be like, oh, can't wait. What a banger of a story, Right? Once upon a time. I mean, immediately, she actually thought they were joking, and she was like, come on, guys, be serious. And he's like, no, 
I'm being serious, it starts once upon a time. But it sort of seems like that. If you read, which I challenge you to go back and actually take, probably take a half hour to read the four chapters, if you read it, it really does kind of seem fairy tale-ish, right? It seems like, I mean, a pretty good story. Everything kind of works out. Spoiler alert, we'll get to that. But it's really not a fairy tale. It kind of seems like a romance, maybe. But people do say it might be the most well-written love story of all time. A book in the Bible. So here's the story. I'm not going to read it all to you. I hope you, are, you can follow along with me. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to try to summarize it. Which, if you know me, I can make a short story long. I've been told. So I'm going to try to give you an actual summary, but it might end up being the extended version. We'll see. You're probably going to rather like, why don't we just read the four chapters? And honestly, that was my plan. Let's just read the four chapters. Let's call it a day. But let's summarize this, okay? So if we look, chapter one begins with this Israelite family, and they're in Bethlehem. The dad's name's Elimelech, mom's name's Naomi, and they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Okay? Israelite family, they're coming from the people of God, these people that are set apart. We know the Israelites are screwing up big time right now. This takes place in the time of the judges, so we know they're screwing up. They're trying to do things on their own, and they're failing over and over again. And in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, ironically enough, there's a famine. There's a threat of a famine. And so Elimelech leads his family. He says, we're out. I mean, I get it. I have four boys. You threatened me with no food. <laughs> I'm out. I'm splitting for sure, right? The kids are annoying just thinking that there's no cinnamon toast crunch available. I'm already tired. So I get it. If there's a threat of a famine, I'd probably take off too. So Elimelech and Naomi lead their sons to a town called Moab, which is about 50 miles away, and it's a pagan town. They don't serve the one true God. So this is where they find themselves in hopes to find a better future because there's no food at the time. So while they're in um, Moab, Elimelech dies. The dad dies. So Naomi's left with her two sons, Malon and Kilian. And during this time, the boys fall in love with two Moabite women. Now, again, I have four sons. I know this is what's going to happen. They're going to go to college. They're going to fall in love. And these girls are going to rip them away from me. And then what, three of them are going to get lucky because I can only be in one place at one time. And I'm only going to be able to stalk one of their lives. Right? So three of them are going to find freedom without their mom near them. <sighs> I already know that's what's going to happen. And some of them are excited this morning to hear that. Like, it could be me. I could get away from her. But... These men, Malon, Kilian, find wives, Orpah and Ruth, and they marry them. While they're there, a period of 10 years, the sons die. So within 10 years, Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech. She loses her sons, Malon and Kilian. She's left with two daughter-in-laws. So they stay there, like I said, for about 10 years, and then they get word that it's time to go back to Bethlehem. Naomi says, she must, you know, you ever wonder, how do you get word that it's okay? 
Like somebody just came, hey, there's that family. I think they dodged the famine. They went to Moab. Somebody send them, let them know. I always wonder about that. That's a side note. That's just how my mind works. But they hear that it's okay to return. The famine's over. It's safe to return to Bethlehem. So they start off on their journey back home. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And a little bit into the journey, Ruth, or Naomi stops and she looks back at her daughter-in-laws and she's like, you guys can go back. You guys don't need to come with me because I have nothing to offer you. We have no people. If you come back with me, it's probably dangerous. You're single ladies in a foreign land. It's probably not going to be good for you. Go back to your moms. Go back to your families. Find a husband. Get married again. Have a life. Have kids. Stay here. And the girls are like, no. But remember, Naomi's a mother-in-law. She's insistent. She gets her way. I'm not a mother-in-law yet, but I'm going to be that one. And so Naomi says, no, go back. And Orpah's like, all right, thanks for that second chance. Peace, I'm out. Orpah takes her up on it. She's like, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to have a life, to live. There's hope here. But Ruth, this is why I like Ruth, she's stubborn. I think, I don't know. But I like to read into her like, you know, I, see, we can be stubborn because Ruth was stubborn, but that's not maybe exactly it. But she was committed. Maybe that's a better word. I'm just going to use that instead. Not stubborn, committed. Right? She's fiercely committed. She stands up to her mother-in-law, and she says, no, Naomi, I'm going to be with you. I'm committed to you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. And so Naomi's like, there must have been something about Ruth, Right? Like, all right, she means business. So the two set off. Naomi just backs down from the fight. And so Ruth and Naomi, they take off and they head back to Bethlehem. And Ruth immediately got to work. They get to the town and she makes good on her promise. She says, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be loyal to you and make sure your needs are met. So she goes to the field. There's a harvest. Remember, the famine is over. There's a harvest in the field. And the people are working on reaping the harvest. And so Ruth gets to work gleaning in the fields. And that means she gets the scraps. It's kind of like their welfare system. It's a law. It was an actual law in the Bible that says people are to leave what they drop on the ground. They're to leave the corners of their fields unpicked. Don't gather up every scrap like Skittles just fell on the ground. You don't need to gather every one of them. Leave it there so that the poor and the orphan and the widow can come behind and they can collect and they can eat. This is what they could do to offer. And it was a law. And so Ruth took advantage of that and she said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to provide for Naomi. And so she heads off to the field and that's exactly what she does. And in the field, fairy tale, ready? Prince Charming. Boaz, you guys, seriously, I can't make this stuff up. Boaz, I went, we went to Celebrate Life a couple weeks ago. All right, I'm telling you, Ruth has been haunting my life for like two weeks. We're sitting at Celebrate Life, an event for our teenagers, and I swear I hear this name. 
I'm like, no way, this can't be true. I'm, this is just, ooh, my imagination. This is just me. And sure enough, probably a 16-year-old there, his name was Boaz. I mean, first of all, what are we doing, people? <laughs> That's a stretch, right? Like, let's just name him that and hope it hope it happens. But that's, that's how God works. I think he's showing up and reminding me he's not leaving me alone. So it was a nice reminder. It was also hilarious because I'm like, what is going on, Boaz? You're going to have a tough life. He's probably a great guy because young, young boys, seriously, if you want women advice, you got to listen up right now. You have a hard time with the ladies. You're trying to figure out how, how to get a girlfriend. Study Boaz, I'm telling you. He's a good one. You need to pay attention. This is your dude, right? Boaz is, happens to be the owner of this field. He's the one that owns the land. And so he comes across this strange lady, Ruth. He's never seen her in the field before. And he approaches her and he says, he knows it's dangerous. See, women without a man in the field, it's dangerous. She's a single woman. A lot of times that could mean they get raped or beaten or treated poorly. And Boaz knew that. And he came to her rescue and he said, hey, I don't know who you are, what you're doing in this field, but don't worry about anything. We're going to take care of you. You need to stop collecting the leftovers. I have hands full. You're going to go back to Naomi. She's going to be shocked with what you bring her. He was generous to her and kind. And she didn't deserve it, and she knew it, but she was so thankful. And just like most of our young people these days, when they get back from work or school, they can't wait to tell all the details of their day. Right, parents? You're like, how was your day? And they're like, oh, we did this and this and this. Oh, my goodness, and then this. It's all the details, Right? Said no parent ever. <laughs> it's like, how was your day? Fine. Did you, did you do anything? Eh, yeah, school stuff. So that's kind of how it went. Yeah, I don't know, right? How do you not know? You just left the place for six hours and nothing happened? I've been to school. Things happen. So that's beside the point. Ruth is opposite. She goes back home. She tells Naomi everything about the day. And she includes that she met this man named Boaz. And then Naomi's like, hmm, that name sounds familiar. I think he's in my husband's line, his family. He's in Elimelech's line. And Naomi remembered that, and so she was like, whew, that makes him a guardian redeemer. Eh? Right? This is a Hebrew term that really means that you're obligated to take responsibility for a family member in crisis. This is kind of how it works. Right? So a light bulb goes off in Naomi's head, and she says, hey, you keep working, Ruth, and then when the harvest hits, I'm going to tell you what to do next. We got a plan. And this is where it turns like less fairy tale-ish and a little more soap opera-ish in my head. Sometimes you read the Bible and you just make it, you know, exciting. This is an exciting story anyway. So one night, 
Naomi says, this is the time to make the move. The harvest is over. The men will be at the threshing floor, which is a concrete, smooth concrete ground where they're just basically separating the good part of the grain and the bad part of the grain, the usable part and the not usable part. So this is where the work comes in, but it's also a celebration. So the guys will be eating, they'll be drinking. And so this is the time to make the move, right? So remember, security at that time, family, people, and land. And so we needed this guardian redeemer. And so Naomi says, here's the plan. Go get cleaned up. Take yourself a bath, girl. You're filthy. Get cleaned up. Put on something nice. Put on a little perfume. And then you're going to wait. You're going to wait until the guys are good and full. They maybe drank a little bit. They're feeling good. And you're going to wait and you're going to go and you're going to watch and see where Boaz sleeps. It's like creepy, right? So popperish. Never seen this in a fairy tale. So that's exactly what Ruth did. Remember, because she made this commitment to Naomi, she was going to do whatever it took to look after Naomi. And so Ruth says, all right, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do, Naomi. And so she goes and she finds Boaz and she sees where he goes to sleep and then she lays at, the, at his feet and she uncovers his ankle. Scandalous, right? <laughs> the ankle uncovering. And really what that means, she's proposing to him. See, I, I told you I like Ruth. Man, today would be like, yeah, girl. She'd be like an entrepreneur. She'd be like a business owner. But back in the day, that was a little forward, right? Women proposing to the man, uncovering the ankle. So he wakes up. It's probably cold. His ankle's uncovered, right? He's like, put my sheets back on me, girl. So she, she, he wakes up and she, he sees this girl. She's covered. So it's not, it doesn't, he doesn't ring a bell that this is the same girl, and then he says, who are you? He, she reveals himself. She says, or herself. She says, I'm Naomi. I'm the, from the field. And he says, hey, listen, I appreciate what you just did. I, 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 I kind of like you too. <laughs> but we got to go about this the right way. See, I know that there's someone in our line that's actually a closer relative to you. Therefore, he has first dibs to be your guardian redeemer propose, rejected? I mean, I told you Boaz was a stand-up guy, though. He's promising to do it the right way. He says, I know that there's somebody else that could potentially redeem you, and we got to go about it the right way. I don't want to make a name for myself. I don't want my cousin to be mad at me, right? So he says, you just wait here. And so Naomi waits, and Boaz heads off to town to meet with this relative of his, this potential guardian redeemer, and he gathers around 10 other guys. He wants to make sure that this is public, that everybody knows that this is done the right way. And he says to the other relative, he says, hey, do you remember our family member, Elimelech? The guy's like, yeah. 
he says, well, he's passed away, but his widow has some land she'd like to sell. Would you like to redeem it? The guy's like, yeah, I think I would. And then Boaz drops the bomb. He's like, okay, cool. Well, I just want to let you know that it comes with Naomi, Elimelech's widow, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And dude's like, oh, it comes with a mother-in-law? No thanks. I'm out. Like, I don't need the land that bad. I don't need two women, two more women to take care of. Right? You had me at mother-in-law. I'm out. So Boaz is like, all right, it's my turn. I get to, I get to make good on this promise, which is what he wanted because he loves Ruth. But he wanted to do it the right way. So he gets to be the redeemer. So he went on to make a public declaration that he would take the property of Elimelech and everything that came with it by making Ruth his wife. So that's the story in a nutshell. See? Short story long. (laughs) Apologize. But here's what I think we can learn from this story. One, proximity matters. I know some of you in here are teachers, and so you're going to know exactly what I mean by this. But when I was teaching, you quickly learned which kids need a little more encouragement and support in the listening department. Right? So I'd gather the kids around at the carpet, and naturally it was the kid always like farthest away from me, you know, why nobody sits in the front row. Proximity matters, right? So there's always that kid that's like gathering up every little crumb and piece of garbage and using it as weapons and just gathering all this stuff, just hoarding all the stuff, or looking like they're absolutely not in the same realm as you are. Right? Or blurting out things that have nothing to do with what you're teaching. And they're just not paying any bit of attention. And so you, you quickly learn this teacher trick that you just shift to where you teach from. And the minute that you come near, behavior changes. In theory. Right? And then it seems that the kids clone themselves. And then there's not just the one kid in the corner, there's a million and you can't be in all the spaces at once. So then that's a whole nother thing. But proximity matters. Change happens when we're close to someone or something. And that's what we see here in the story, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, just after Ruth told Naomi, like, I'm coming with you whether you like it or not, right? So 19 says this. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So I'm, I'm guessing more people stayed in Bethlehem than left. And so 10 years later, when they came back, it was like, Is this really her? Could this be her? She's back. And this is what Naomi says. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So what I didn't mention is Naomi means pleasant or lovely. That's what she was when she left. She was pleasant. She was lovely. And when she came back, she says, don't call me that. That's not who I am anymore. I'm bitter. Because remember, they left the house of bread, this place of sustenance, this place of life. And they went to Moab, a place that served a pagan god. And they go away from all the people, all the Israelites. They go away from their people because they didn't trust that God was going to provide in the mess, in the famine. And they seemed to get lost for about a decade. And when we walk away, sometimes it's hard to get back to where we came from. It's hard to find that place of life again. And we change. Look at Naomi. She leaves pleasant and lovely and she comes back and she says, don't call me that. Call me Mara because I, that means bitter. Because I'm changed. When I walked away from this place, this house of bread, I was hit hard. Life wasn't good to me. So much stuff happened and I'm no longer pleasant. I'm not even recognizable because proximity matters because change happens when people are near or far from someone or something. And that's where I would suggest the second point. Because proximity matters, we need to be a clinger, right? So what does clinging look like? In my life, it looks like this. Looks like my 18-month-old baby crying in the middle of the night and me running to his rescue. Well, not running, you know, staggering to his rescue in the middle of the night, picking him up, and he wraps his legs around my waist so tight and his little arms around my neck, and he's not going to let go. I don't even know what woke him up or what he's scared about or what he needs but I know he knows what's going to happen next, and so he clings, because what's going to happen next is I'm going to find that pacifier, and I'm going to put it in his mouth, and I'm going to say, hey, pacify yourself, because <laughs> mama loves some sleep, especially in the nighttime when mama's supposed to be sleeping. But he clings like it's his job, like he will not let me go. And I picture the same kind of clinging in chapter 1, starting in verse 11, it says, But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Right? She's trying to tell them, Go back. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? 
Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, I love this, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Don't you love that picture? She says, Orpah, sad as it was, she turned and she left, but Ruth clung to her. And she says, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. This is clinging. Naomi was even offering her an easier life. She was giving her permission to go. And she says, "Mm -mm. I know we're living in a messed up time. We got messy lives right now. But Ruth commits to Naomi and to her God. And she says, even in the mess, I'm going to cling. Because proximity, nearness to God matters, and we need to cling to that, to him. And here's why. Because we need a redeemer. We all do. How many of us here have something that you're insecure about? Right? Things that we see flaws in our own lives. Stop counting on your fingers, I see you. (laughs) Things that aren't perfect. Things that other people are shaming us for. We have defects and weaknesses that are holding us back. Things that aren't going the way that we wanted them to and we're insecure about that. Right? I mean, I recently rode in a car with our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders called our Impact 231 kids. And on that ride, in the course of an hour, each and every one of those kids revealed to me something that they're insecure about. That happened that day at school. They're too short. They're not smart enough. Their family makeup is weird. Got the wrong color hair. Stink at math. Nobody likes you. Of course, they didn't just divulge that information. I pry it out of people, right? That's what I do. But they're insecure about things in their life that they can't even control. But they consider them flaws they believe these lies that other people are telling about. They believe lies that they've heard and it's causing them to have insecurity about themselves. I think Ruth is no different. 
Remember at the beginning I said, I have a hard time figuring out what Ruth's flaw would be. I think if Ruth had any flaw at all, because all I see is bold and hardworking and confident and committed, but I'm going to go out there and say if she had a flaw, it's in her insecurity. Quite literally, Ruth is insecure, right? How do you get security? Land and people. She has neither. So in this culture, she is deeply insecure, quite literally. She has nothing to make her stable and certain. Her future is unstable and uncertain. She has an aging mother-in-law, but let's be real, she doesn't have a man. And in that culture, that says a lot. She's insecure. So Ruth puts herself out there. She really puts herself in a vulnerable situation, and she says, I'm going to propose to Boaz. Imagine this. And then imagine, he says, actually, um, let me get back to you. Right? He has to go about, before he gives her an answer, he has to go about some business. And so I bet in this waiting, all of her insecurities just come flooding back to her. She's waiting for an answer. Will she be redeemed? Is she enough? Is she worth it? Does somebody want me? And I bet when she's waiting, she's flooded with all of the things that she's not. Celebrate life, kids, our teenagers. Maybe you're with me on this. A couple weeks, a weekend ago, you put yourself out there, you auditioned, you submitted drawings, you played instruments, you tried out for teams, and then you waited for the results. You waited for somebody to tell you if you were good enough, if you were fast enough, strong enough, talented enough, if you didn't mess up enough. What ribbon were you going to get? Were you going to be included on this team? Were you going to be able to be a part of something? And so you waited, and I bet all of those questions came to you, too. All of your insecurities, all of your worries probably flooded your brain at that moment. And I think this is what we're sitting here with Ruth. She's recalling all of her flaws. I'm a Moabite. I'm a foreigner in this strange land. I'm not even really wanted here. I'm an enemy of Israel. Really? I'm from the wrong place. I'm a widow. I've got no husband. I don't have any kids. I'm working in the field scraping up leftovers. I'm poor. So culturally, she was deeply flawed. Society was telling her, you're not enough. Ruth needed a redeemer. But here's the news for us. So do we. And in the end, Ruth's redemption had nothing to do with who she wasn't. It had nothing to do with who she was not. It had everything to do with who her redeemer was. The good news for you and I is that we have a Redeemer. 
and his name is Jesus. And all of our flaws and insecurities and ways that we don't measure up is taking care of that. Because he's flawless. And he's secure. And when we acknowledge him as our redeemer, we can find stability and security in him. Because we aren't enough. Hear that rightly, though. Without Jesus, we aren't enough. None of us can do this by ourselves. We all need a redeemer. Because we have insecurities that need to be made secure. We have flaws that we need to be able to bring to a flawless God. We have imperfections that need to be perfected. And when we acknowledge our need for a Redeemer, Jesus, through his amazing grace, allows us to experience true freedom. Proximity matters. God made a promise to us that he will never leave us. He's not going to forget about us. He's always going to be near But here's the question, do we know the nearness of God? And if the answer is no, then that's probably on us. We need to take a step toward him because do you know what about our God? He doesn't move. He's a better parent than I am. He's not trying to find the pacifier and stick you back in your crib. He's in it for the long haul rock you back to sleep. I'll wake up with you. Whatever you need, I'm here. I love to be near you. I love when you cry out in the middle of the night for me. God bless him. But aren't you glad for that? And if you don't know that today, I hope you know that. I hope you come to find that proximity matters. And if you find yourself far and unrecognizable and you're in this place where you're like, don't call me that anymore. I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. It's been a while. It's been a minute since I've been near to God. Since I felt this closeness to him. Take him up on it. Take him up on his offer to never leave you. To always be available that he's always near. Take a step toward him. You'll find him. Be a clinger. When life gets messy, and some of us are living that mess right now, so you get it, you're exactly in the throes of a messy life. Messy circumstances, messy situations, tough stuff. Stay near to God. Cling to him. I know being a clinger has like, you know, reportable kind of things like restraining orders and stuff like that. But in this context, I'm telling you, be a clinger, especially when life gets messy. Ruth knows a thing or two about a messy life. She had some pretty crappy circumstances, and she was a clinger. 
Do you want to know the cool thing about Ruth? If you continue to the end of the chapter 4, it gives a genealogy. And I I wasn't going to include that, but this is so cool. Because Ruth was a clinger and she was so obedient and faithful, we call my, my grandma, my kids get to call my grandma old grandma. I know, it's not rude, she loves it. I promise, right? But old grandma, right? Kids have a lot of grandmas. And so to be able to distinguish between which grandma was which, we called her old grandma. She's the oldest one. It ain't offensive, it's just the truth. (laughs) Ruth is the old grandma of King David. She's the great grandma of King David. Do you want to know who else comes from the line of King David? Jesus. You know what else comes from that line? You and me. Right? Ruth was a clinger, and because of her, we get to say we have a redeemer. We get to say we're part of that line. That's our family. Those are our people. I mean, you might want to disown some people near you, but like, look back far. We got a good heritage. Because of Ruth's faithfulness, because she was a clinger, I don't know, what is it? Stage five, whatever. What do you call that? Stage five clinger? That's like not a good thing. Be a stage five clinger. Cling on to Jesus because you don't even know what he can do with us. Old grandma didn't know she was going to be in the line of Jesus, but she stayed faithful. And God used her to bring about our Redeemer of the entire world. So three, we need a Redeemer, and his name's Jesus. We don't have to carry our flaws and insecurities around with us anymore because it's been redeemed, it's been claimed, it's been taken from us. All of us, with all our messes, all we have to do is grab a hold of that and live into that truth. I hope the story of Ruth has sparked something in you today. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that You're a God who shows up for us. That you're a God who's near to us. Man, that's good. That's good to know that we're never alone. Because sometimes life gets lonely and dark and tough and messy and hard to navigate on our own and we want to do it our own way and go back to a a foreign land or a place of comfort or potential prosperity, you call us back and you say, hey, I'm here. And you're not alone. So we're thankful for that truth that we can count on you. And we know that in the midst of so many other relationships in this life, when people let us down, when people say they're going to do something and then they don't, People promise something and then they break that promise. You're there. You are a promise 
keeper. So we're thankful for the way in which you show us who you are as a redeemer. And that you love us despite our flaws. And you say, hey, give that over to me. I know what to do with that. I'm going to throw it out the window. Because I got, I already redeemed you. So stop believing that. God, would you remind us who we are in you as your creation? Would you help us to continue to point people to a flawless God? That despite our imperfections, we get to point people to you. What a great opportunity that is. That we get to work out our stuff in front of people and we just get to remind them. We're not perfect, but we know someone who is. God, would you help us to be light in a dark world? Would you help us to be clingers and stay near to you? Because you are a redeemer. And through your grace, we get to enter into relationship with Jesus. And we're so thankful for that. God, you are good, and we love you. It's in your precious name we say.